Welcome to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast, where we interview our industry's top female executives from Australia, New Zealand, and around the world. I'm Michelle Batsis, your host and the Chief Executive Officer of the Public Transport Association, Australia, New Zealand. We're raising the voices of women for everyone who works in public transport and mobility, and particularly for any of our listeners who are early in their transport careers and looking for inspiration. Each of our guests shares her views on the future of public transport and provides insights into their career journeys. Make sure you follow Women Who Move Nations on your favorite podcast platform and rate the show to help more people find us. You can also join our community on LinkedIn by searching Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. We're also on Twitter at PTAANZ underscore or visit us at www.ptaanz.org. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to our first episode of Women Who Move Nations. I'm delighted to be joined by Michelle Dix, Managing Director of Crossrail 2 at Transport for London. Thanks so much for speaking to us, Michelle. Pleasure. We're really excited to have you as our first guest in this series. We're interviewing senior female leaders from across the public transport sector around the world to highlight the great work they're doing. You are one of the most senior female leaders in transport in the world. Actually, Michelle, did you know that you have a Wikipedia page? So actually, I think you are the most um, well-regarded. No, truly, really, one of the the most well-regarded females working in the transport sector and with your vast experience. So my first question for you is... How did you get to where you are? Um, thanks very much, Michelle. I got to where I am um, through doing stuff I enjoy. Uh, I'm a civil engineer. I've got a civil engineering degree. I then did a PhD in um, land use transport planning, and I wanted to apply that um, in an environment where much of that sort of work was going on. So my first job was with the Greater London Council um, back in the 70s. Many projects that I've done at the GLC, I've also been involved in throughout um, the rest of my career. I had worked in the public sector, but I did want experience of the private sector. So I moved over to the private sector and worked for an international um, transport planning consultancy um, called Halcro. Gained lots of experience there. Went for jobs that I enjoyed um, and one of the things I did do at Halcrows was to develop the policy for a congestion charging scheme. When uh, a new mayor of London was established and there was a reality of making that scheme um, a real scheme and a job was advertised for the new um, mayoralty in Transport for London to actually develop the scheme, implement it and run it, the director of congestion charging job, I applied for it um, because I wanted to do something that put my policy into practice. I applied for it with a friend of mine called Malcolm Murray-Clark and we did it as a job share, which in itself was uh, very unique at the time. Thoroughly enjoyed that, that, that job, thoroughly enjoyed the work. I only intended to go back to TfL for three years, to the public sector for three years, and then go back to consultancy. But I just love the work at TfL because it's all about getting things done. And I've just continued to follow doing things that I've enjoyed. And as a consequence, I've been lucky enough to have been promoted in that 
process. So I've got to where I am, I'd say, by just doing things that I've enjoyed and in doing them well, have been sort of rewarded with the positions that I've had. I love that sentiment, Michelle, around enjoying your work um, and also just your passion around getting things done. And certainly you have done some incredible work at TFL. Um, And I do want to ask you a bit more about the congestion charging, but we'll come to that a bit later. So I'd love to talk about your current role. So you're the managing director of the Crossrail 2 project. For audience members who might not know, it's a major infrastructure project to create a new rail line that will run north to south through London to connect it to its surrounds. So I'd love to know, you've been working on this project for five years now. It's obviously a major infrastructure project and priority in London. So what excites you about it and keeps you going? Um, What excites me about working on Crossrail 2 is the vast range of topics that you cover. Prior to concentrating on Crossrail 2, I was the managing director of planning and did a lot of work looking at the strategy for London, identifying policies of all different sorts across London, one of which was, in fact, Crossrail 2. When I had the opportunity to sort of take Crossrail 2 forward, to actually develop the scheme, to develop the detail on the scheme, to deal with the funding and finance work, to look at the uh, consents work, to look at the um, stakeholder um, concerns about the scheme. I I was very excited to take that up because you you not only are looking at the scheme in the strategic sense, but getting down to the detail. Details such as how's the spoil going to be removed from all the tunnels that you have to build? How are the sort of like trains going to sort of um, be stored um, in the evenings? How are you going to get services going? How can you ensure that the um, dwell times at platforms allow you to run the level of service that you want to run. So, so a lot of really interesting details. So, so I love the big picture, but I also like the detail. And that's the thing that's really excited me about working on Crossrail 2, as well as the fact it is a hugely important scheme for London, but also for the whole of the southeast, because it, as, as you said, it connects London with its surrounding areas. It'll have an impact all the way from the south coast uh, of the UK to what we call the wash, which is a, an area um, north of sort of like the Cambridge area. So a huge impact. It will also generate huge job opportunities throughout the country as well as within London. It sounds like a fantastic project. I'm interested to know, has COVID-19 impacted your planning for the project at the moment? Uh, COVID-19 has impacted lots of things, um, the outcome of which we're not clear on. Um, As with many other countries, we're having to sort of support people, support jobs across the country um, with the government, sort of like providing companies with uh, monies to furlough staff. Obviously, a lot of people have been working from home. A lot of people have been doing things locally because of the COVID crisis. So we need to consider um, post-COVID sort of like what what schemes get prioritised across the country. One of the big challenges with Crossrail 2, and it's been a challenge for the past five years, is the funding for it. It's a scheme that's going to cost sort of like over 30 billion. Um, So it's a huge scheme of importance for the whole nation, but it has to be considered alongside many other schemes that are required across the country, um, in particular in the north of the country, There's a lot of debate about what's called the um, balancing the economy um, between the North and the South. Prior to uh, the COVID crisis, the National Infrastructure Commission had identified that the government should be able to support not only Crossrail 2, 
but important rail schemes in the north. But what we'll have to consider is the impact of COVID on that going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's something that cities around the world now are having to consider in terms of where the investment goes, their priorities for that. And certainly something you've touched on, there's this real theme around actually how public transport contributes to job, job growth um, and economic recovery, which I think is really important as well. So I know that you're in the management team at TFL. We've been watching what's happening in London from afar. I mean, there are some great initiatives you've put in place very quickly in order to keep people safe and the city moving particularly for key workers. So I wanted to know, you know, from your perspective, what do you see to be on the horizon at TFL in terms of the challenges, but also the opportunities in the post-COVID world for public transport? Well, one of the big opportunities which we've observed um, through COVID is the vastly improved air quality that we get when people aren't traveling as much as they have been, and also the reduction in CO2 emissions. So we want to be able to build on that. Also, as you'll be aware, um, with the requirements of social distancing and us getting people back to work, one of the things that we have to do is, is, is make sure that on our tube surface, we don't carry more people than um, we can, given social distancing measures of two metres. So we've been actively promoting much more walking and cycling. And that has been really, really exciting because the number of people who are now cycling is considerably more than before COVID. We had our record... Um, number of hires on our bike hire scheme um, this weekend, the most ever, um, some 40,000 uh, a day, which is really, really good. Um, so we will want to encourage more walking and cycling going forward, but we do want to get public transport um, working again as it did before. It'll come when obviously the, the COVID crisis is, is over, but we need to make sure it stays the backbone of our city planning. There were sort of signs during the COVID crisis of um, people returning and people returning by car but what we don't want is to people to return by car because we don't want the congestion associated with that so we have actually restarted the congestion charging scheme to deter people coming by car if they don't need to travel because we have to make sure that public transport um, as i say stays at the forefront but many more cycling schemes going in temporary ones for the time being but we hope to make them more permanent and much more walking space um, as well as things that we've been piloting anyway in terms of um, more electric vehicles, more charging points. And our government is now um, setting up trials for e-scooters. They weren't legal um, in the UK, but uh, given where we are and wanting to make people mobile, we're trialling e-scooters as well. That's so impressive to hear, Michelle, actually. Just there's a number of initiatives that TFL has put into place. And I know that it's um, been a real source of inspiration, actually, certainly for many of the cities in Australia and New Zealand and around the world um, that have been looking at the initiatives you put into place with quite some interest. And I think the, the cycling and, and walking um, is going to be something that actually is going to drive long-term change, which is very exciting. I wanted to talk now about what's going on more globally. So you sit on the UITP executive board and for our audience, that board is made up of representatives from around the world. And indeed, that's how we met through UITP, right? When I met you at the Global Public Transport Summit in Stockholm in June 2019. And through this network, you're connected to knowledge and information from authorities, operators and suppliers from all countries around the world. There are 100 countries that are members of UITP, actually. And I wanted to know from your perspective, 
What do you see to be the top global issues in public transport and mobility right now? One of the key impacts has been the financial impacts of COVID. And as with many public transport operators, we have had to deter users from using our system in order that we can make sure the system's only available for key workers, i.e. the health workers. But as a result of that, we were very, very successful. We saw a drop of 95% in terms of our normal usage on the tube, but we consequently saw a drop in 95% of our revenues. Um, And we rely heavily on our operating revenues to actually pay for our operating costs. Unlike any other or many other um, organisations across the world, Transport for London does not get a direct um, operating grant from the government for operating our services. So the financial impacts of that are huge. Uh, There are many other operators who face similar um, issues because their revenues have dropped. So our biggest concern globally is to make sure that that support from government to keep services going, albeit they are required to carry far less people at present because of the social distancing requirements. So financial impacts are a huge um, concern to public transport people across the world. The other thing is to ensure that in the recovery um, phase of which many of us are in is that public transport stays the the cornerstone of our urban mobility plans. As I said um, previously, some people are reverting back to car and what we don't want is to people to revert back to car because we'll bring back the old problems that we had with congestion, with pollution, with slight lack of space. So public transport has to be a key part of the recovery plan in any plans uh, for urban mobility. And I think the the other thing that's really important is making sure that um, climate change stays high on the agenda and public transport is a key part of uh, delivering that, particularly in terms of um, getting support to refresh our fleets, to make them greener, to provide more in terms of um, electric uh, vehicles, electric charging points, um, and getting support from sort of uh, green deals across the world in terms of making public transport cleaner and greener. So I think, you know, they're the main things. So financial support, making sure that public transport is, is right at the heart of our recovery plans and getting support for ensuring that the green aspects, the green opportunities associated with COVID are continued through improved investment in public transport, particularly greener, cleaner public transport. I completely agree, Michelle. And actually, you've led right into my next question, which is about congestion charging, because I think it is the fear of many authorities and operators. You know, I mean, the conversations that I'm having, you know, are people going to get in their cars and then never return to public transport? And that's not to say no one will return, but certainly there is a question about what kind of congestion we might see without putting measures in place to mitigate that and ensure the sustainability of our cities. So if we talk about maybe what your, you know, your role that you played in congestion charging at TFL. So you referred to it earlier where you were the director of congestion charging in a job share arrangement, actually, which is just so impressive that that happened back then, right? Um, Congestion charging that London has in place is still considered a world-leading example of how to encourage that shift to more sustainable modes of transport through policy interventions. Um, What did you learn from leading that initiative? I think one of the main things I learned from leading that initiative is to keep going. Um, When congestion charging was first 
um, looked at, and I say I looked at it, I was the, um, the director of the study that was done for government in terms of looking at road user charging options before Transport for London and the mayor was established. As a policy, lots of people were very interested in it as a policy because it was theoretical. And we demonstrated how it could like, resolve many of London's congestion problems and its air quality problems. Um, and it would help promote sort of like bus usage, walking and cycling. When it was taken up by the, um, the first mayor of London, Ken Livingstone, again, there was support for it. But as it became more of a reality, people got worried about it and people started sort of like questioning whether or not it would work, questioning uh, whether or not the impacts would be negative. And you could see sort of like people's support falling away. The key thing was to sort of believe it was the right thing to do and to push on despite the fact that people were becoming nervous about it. And what I learned from that is, is that with Ken Levingstone, he was prepared, um, supported by Malcolm and I and, and, and TFL to make sure that the scheme went in. So when we monitored um, support for congestion charging, as I say, as a policy, lots of support, as it became a scheme and started to be taken forward, the support disappeared. And as you all know, everyone thought when it was put in, it wouldn't work, it would be a failure, but it was an instant success and support rocketed again. So it's like sticking to your guns. If you think it's the right thing to do, stick to it and get it done. That's a pretty inspirational story, actually, to think about because... I think many cities and regions really struggle to implement policies that will actually help the outcomes we get for citizens, you know, both for, from customers, you know, and the perspective of how they travel on the network and how they're able to access opportunities, but also actually the broader implications for, this, for the city, for air quality and for sustainability. I think that's something that Transport for London seems to do very well. TFL is considered as an industry benchmark globally, and I'm interested to know, what do you think makes things work so well from a policy perspective? In that, why do you think TFL is able to implement such innovative policy solutions and able to actually bring them forward and do it in a way that other cities can't? I think TFL has been able to be innovative because it has to be. The challenges that we've faced have been so huge. The reason why we put the congestion charging scheme in, which was an innovative, challenging policy, was because London was completely gridlocked and we had provided public transport solutions, we had extensive parking measures in place, um, we had done all the things that other people would consider should be done before needing to do congestion charging. So it was, it was a case of had, having done everything else to try and reduce congestion, here was another measure, controversial as it was, um, but we needed to put it in. And as I said, you know, it wasn't without sort of um, people being concerned about it, but once it did go in, it was hugely successful. We've also had huge problems, as, as you're aware, with air quality. So we devised um, other innovative measures. First of all, the low emission zone, which was a, um, a measure to reduce um, air pollutants across London. That went in because it only affected um, heavier uh, diesel engine vehicles and we had to deal with the trade. It wasn't quite so controversial in its implementation. But our recent extension of that to what's called the ultra low emission zone, whereby we require sort of like all um, users to drive a cleaner vehicle in order to reduce pollutions, in, including sort of like um, Joe Public, that we've had to do because we've had too many people dying from air quality related issues. 
you know, from poor, poor air quality. So th these are measures that we've introduced because we've had to introduce them in order to bring about an improvement. So I don't think it's that we're trying to be innovative. We're having to be innovative to solve challenging problems. Well, that's a really good point, actually, isn't it? Just thinking through, it's almost like you're forced to be innovative because you're having to deal with the problems that the Londoners are facing, right? And you're doing that work for them, making sure that they have the best outcomes they can. Certainly, it seems that TFL is prepared to be bold and brave. You know, I think in Australia, we're maybe 10 years away, I think, from seeing a congestion type scheme implemented potentially in one of our city centres. It's something that's been talked about in many cities around the world. I know LA are looking at it, but I think it's still a way off for many cities. So, Michelle, you've talked about some of the initiatives you've been doing at TFL, and obviously there are more great initiatives and innovations going on at TFL but also around the world what are some of the best initiatives you've seen i think sort of um one of one of the best i think congestion charging is obviously one of the best initiatives she says unmodestly <laughs> i think um another <laughs> another really good initiative and again it's, it's it's something that's been done in london is the oyster card the introduction of the oyster card just transformed people's travel in london in being able to like travel to like when they want um where they want have a sort of like price that's capped so they never pay more than they ever have to. I think that's been really, really transformational. I think um, whether or not there's controversy over Uber, but the introduction of um, systems such as Uber and the smart technologies, they've been transformational. Uh, whether we get e-scooters sort of um, everywhere, I've seen them in operation in other countries. Um, all these new technologies will transform personal mobility very, very much more. Um, something that I think has been a marvellous invention is the digitalization of signals, signaling systems, so that we can run trains closer together and increase capacity on existing lines without necessarily having to build new lines. Uh, we've seen that across the world and we're applying that in London um, with, with, with new systems. This will enable us to, as I say, build more capacity without building more lines. That said, when we've done that, we still need to build more lines, hence schemes such as Crossrail 2. Michelle, I think you really drew out all of the key initiatives that we're seeing in public transport. And there's a lot to be excited about. I think something you mentioned earlier that I'd like to talk about now is actually the role public transport plays in the economic sense. And certainly right now with COVID-19 and the recovery period that we're seeing and the talk of the new normal, public transport is a part of that economic recovery. And I'd like to know from your perspective, how do you see the role of public transport in the UK's economic recovery from COVID-19? And potentially you might have some reflections on that more broadly. Public transport, um, as I said previously, has to be the cornerstone of any recovery plan. Um, public transport certainly... Um, carries the majority of uh, our users in London and makes London work, particularly because London is so central focused um, in, its, in its workforce, the way, the way we operate. We couldn't operate without the public transport services that we have in place. So keeping public transport going is really, really essential to the economic growth of London and of this country. Investing in public transport and continuing to invest is also important, not only in sustaining the services that we have at present, but also in promoting new services and further growth, um, because all countries want to grow and want to be able to compete economically. Public transport um, generates huge numbers of jobs, it supports a huge number of jobs, but we are going through this period where we have to um, maintain social distancing, 
we have to ensure that people using our public transport services feel safe on them. Um, we have to follow social distancing guidelines, increase cleaning regimes, increase signage about the do's and don'ts on public transport. And whilst we're going through this like, particularly sensitive period, we are supporting walking and cycling. And we want those um, activities to continue to grow and to continue to support public transport. So we must continue to invest in public transport, in the improvements that we're planning before COVID um, to make sure that uh, the services do sort of grow to respond to the needs of our economy. Yeah, I think it's actually an exciting time for public transport as well, because there are opportunities to innovate and get better outcomes. And certainly there's that drive now with walking and cycling, which is really great to see. So I'd like to circle back actually to where we started the discussion, where we were talking about your career. And then I'd like to talk about women in transport as well, because this is the heart of the podcast series that we're doing. So in relation to your career, you've told us you've got a PhD in transport and land use, you're a civil engineer, and certainly you've spent a large part of your career in public service, or as in the UK, you call it the civil service. And I was really actually interested to hear that you didn't intend to stay so long at TFL, but it's really exciting to hear how much you love it there. I also understand you're a trustee for the London Transport Museum. So obviously you're really into transport and it must be something you're really passionate about. You can hear that when you talk. And I wanted to know what drew you to transport in the first place and what makes you stay in this industry? When I did a civil engineering degree, one of the courses within civil engineering, along with structures, uh, water, um, energy, was in fact transport. And, and it was a course that I loved. Um, and I loved it because it affects everybody. It has, a, it has a real bearing on society and everyone has an opinion about transport. Um, my dad at the time used to think he had lots of opinions or did have lots of opinions about it and what I should and shouldn't do. So um, I enjoyed that so much. That's why I did the, uh, the land use transport PhD to understand the relationship between transport and land use. Um, and then when I worked for the GLC, that was an opportunity to put many of those sort of um, ideas into practice because the GLC, like TFL and the GLA, was responsible for uh, large parts of London, um, transport, housing, education, and it's the links between all those things that have excited me. So working at the GLC, being able to put those like policy measures into action has really, really sort of kept me interested in the subject. I also had a, a boss at the GLC called David Bayliss, um, who was the director of um, transport planning for the whole of the GLC. And I did think um, when I was a young graduate, it'd be lovely to have his job um, one day. And effectively, when I was MD of planning, that's what I got. So it's, it's, it's because the, the topic has such a bearing on people's lives that I've enjoyed it so much. Yeah, it absolutely does do that. That's why I work in transport. I love it. You know, you can feel that impact on communities and the people who move in cities. Michelle, you've had such a great career already with so many great achievements and nailed so many challenging tasks. I wanted to ask what's been the highlight for you so far? The congestion charging has to be the highlight because that was such a sort of like a, a unique initiative. And uh, the day that it went live was really, really um, an exciting day because it could have been an absolute disaster. Not that we thought it would be, but everyone else did or the triumph that it was. Other things that I'm really um, proud of are the, uh, the air quality schemes that we've put in place, the low emission zone, um, the ultra low emission zone, 
Um, the, these, these are things that sort of are really cutting edge in terms of changing people's behaviour. But I think it is also worth mentioning something that I'm, I'm passionate about is the work that we've done in ensuring this strong link between transport development and funding. So um, the first scheme that we um, got going and I was very much sort of like at the forefront of was the Northern Line extension. Um, that was necessary to open up a large area for development that had been sort of stalled for decades with the developer wanting to develop huge amounts of land but not necessarily wanting to pay for the sort of transport that's required to do so. Anyway, cut a long story short, we got a strong link between the development how the development would impact business rates, how that then in turn could be used to help pay for um, the transport scheme that was needed. And as such, we got the Northern Line extension off the ground. So it was quite a groundbreaking piece of work. But I say that sort of like my, my, my greatest achievement is in many ways is, is having had a career spanning 40 years that I just loved. I love that, Michelle. I actually visited the Northern Line Extension Project when I was in London last year. It's an incredible project that's really going to transform a whole area of London. And I think that's what's so great about public transport and a project when you make that investment, actually, because it's going to change so many lives for the better and for the future. There's, there's another thing I'm proud of, but most people aren't, but I still love it. And that's the cable car. <laughs> really? The cable car is unique. The cable car hasn't cost us any money. The cable car was sort of initiated out of um, someone wanting to sponsor uh, an initiative in London and put money forward. Um, the sort of sponsorship covers the costs of operation of the cable car because we um, it's not part of the the oyster system in the sense that it's a, a fare that you pay for sort of like separately then perhaps it's not as well used as it might otherwise be but it's 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 revenues cover its operating costs which is quite unique and I love it that's so great I can hear the passion in your voice um, I never would have thought you would have said cable car, but it is a mode of transport. So I love that. It was the cheapest way and the quickest way to get people across the river in a part of London where there's very, very few river crossings. So it, it's, it immediately connected two parts of London, either side of the River Thames. Um, so that, that's been really, really important at a sort of cost of 40 um, million, and as I say, sort of anything else you'd want to do in that area, the Silvertown tunnel that we're building, these, these are things that cost hundreds and hundreds of millions. And the cable car took us two years. So cheap, quick, effective. You know what I love about that too, right? Sometimes it's actually a cheap, quick, effective solution um, that can make a big difference as well. Yeah. So Michelle, I want to actually come back to the key crux of why we're doing this series on women who move nations and talk about women in public transport and gender balance. You and I both know that there still is really a stark difference between the number of males that we see in really senior roles in transport versus women. That was one of the reasons actually we started this podcast. We had this idea about providing a platform to raise the profile and voices of women, where often the events that I go to, the webinars I view or the podcasts I listen to, I I'm often hearing males' voices, and of course, there's a great perspective there, but there starts to be a real lack of diversity. And as I said earlier, we met through UITP, and I know you're a key figure driving a gender balance agenda throughout the whole UITP membership network around the world. The authorities, the suppliers, the operators, the advisors, and the universities, there are so many involved in the UITP network. And I wanted to know from you, what do you see to be the opportunities for the UITP network and its members 
and what's holding us back from seeing women progress up the ranks into top leadership roles? I think one thing I will say is that things have changed for the better. Um, certainly uh, when I first started um, in, in, in my career, I was always like the only one, uh, the only woman in the room um, for most meetings, most events. Now, many more women are party to the discussions, are party to the work that we're doing. They're not necessarily in the most senior positions, but they're there. And that's the most important thing, that they are there, they are involved, and their opportunities are far greater. With UITP, it's not well represented by women at the top, but in order for it to be well represented by women at the top, we've got to get more women in as members, we've got to get more women onto committees, we've got to get more women participating, because once we get them participating, then they will rise to the top. Within TfL, we've seen huge changes in terms of uh, women representation at uh, senior levels by encouraging women to come into the industry through our graduate recruitment programme and our apprentice recruitment programme. Also, when women are in the industry, by uh, making sure that we can offer um, ways in which we work uh, that are conducive to people who have to bring up families and do caring at the same time to make it easier for, for women and, and other carers to be in the industry. And then when it comes to sort of promotions, sort of to recognise that um, women can do the job just as well as men and to make sure women can be more, um, more less less modest about uh, their achievements. So in, in selling themselves more in terms of um, getting promotion. But as I say, it's, it's changed hugely at um, Transport for London. It hasn't changed as much at the very, very top, but certainly in our sort of director band and our band five band, many more women are coming through. And I'd like to see that we could do that with UITP by having more women on the committees, then more women becoming sort of chairs of the committees, and then more women being on the policy board and more women being in the executive board, and ideally a woman president. Michelle, I completely agree. And I look forward to the day we have a UITP female president and see a greater representation of females in leadership roles around the world, because that's how we're actually going to end up having a UITP female president, which would be very exciting. And I look forward to that day. You talked about a range of measures there and ways in which we can assist women to get into the public transport sector and to help them rise through the ranks. And I think what's really important is talking about role models, really. And Michelle, you are a role model. I mean, you're my role model. And it's so great you've shared your achievements because I think females tend not to do that so much. You use the word modest. And I think actually that that's a really good description. So I wanted to pick your brain with the experience that you have what advice would you give to women who are just starting out in their career or in the early years of their careers in public transport? I, I think the advice that I would give is the advice I always give, and I've sort of said it earlier, is to go for things that you enjoy. Um, don't be obsessed by promotion. Um, don't be obsessed by thinking, I must become X by such and such a time. Go for things that you enjoy in terms of jobs. And if you enjoy it, you'll do it well. And if you do it well, you'll get promoted. Because I, 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 do, I do meet a lot of people who are worried, you know, I'm such and such an age and I'm not such and such by now. And you say, well, are you happy doing what you're doing? No, well, why are you doing it? You know, do something you enjoy, then you will be happy, then you'll do it better. And then you'll move up without worrying about moving up. So it's to go for things that you enjoy. That's what I've done without being sort of like worried about what I was. And, and, and then I've been sort of like lucky in, in well whether it's yeah it is luck um in terms of being sort of rewarded with with 
the sort of positions that I've got, but I've gone for them because I wanted them because I'd, I'd enjoy them. Yeah, that's great advice, Michelle. Can I ask you, have you ever had like a 10-year plan or a five-year plan or have you just gone with it? Um, for someone who's a planner, who you know has planned London to the nth degree until 2040, no. <laughs> not, not for myself um, yeah okay I've, I've always for myself so like made decisions on the basis of would i enjoy this um and whenever i've had a, a decision where you know i might have been offered two things two jobs and i've not been sure which to take rather than sort of get into a you know a big turmoil over it i think well if i, if I don't know which one to take it doesn't really matter and if it's that close doesn't really matter just take one and that, that's sort of how I've reacted to things I've not planned out where I wanted to go other than as I said at the beginning seeing David Bayliss at the GLC when I was a you know a, a young graduate and thinking that would be a nice job to have but I didn't then set out to get it I just ended up as as, as it um, which was lovely. Thank you so much for sharing Michelle it's just so inspiring to hear about your journey I wanted to ask you one more question so you're working on Crossrail 2 and it's a big project. One day when it's complete or if you happen to move off after that, I wanted to ask, do you have any idea what you'd, you might like to do next? Well, lots of people have asked me this question and I do have an idea of what I want to do next, but there's a stumbling block um, and that's my husband. Um, <laughs> what I'd like to do when I retire is I'd like to open a tea room. We live in the country and the village that we're in could do with a tea room and I quite like to run one. And my husband has said, what, what would you want to do that for? Why would you want to sort of serve tea to people? And I think, well, I actually spent most of my working life serving the public. So what's wrong with serving tea with them when I'm retired? So that's what I'd like to do. I love that idea, Michelle. And I will come visit your tea room. If, if I ever get it off the ground because of my stumbling block. <laughs> <laughs> you never know you never know um i've gone through all my questions so michelle is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to make a comment on or offer any advice on i think the only thing i'd like to sort of say at the end is is that i've been lucky to have a fantastic career in transport there are lots of sort of like young women coming into transport i think there's huge opportunities for them to rise to the top and to sort of like work on some major major innovations that will come forward and make their lives even more exciting than the one that I've had. Thank you. I love that. And I'm really excited actually to see a greater diversity in the cohort of people who are rising up the ranks in public transport. Michelle Dix, thank you so much for your time. It's been incredibly inspiring to hear what drives you professionally and how you've achieved so much and some of the amazing initiatives you've worked on. I'd also like to thank everyone who's listening. We hope you've enjoyed this first episode of Women Who Move Nations. We've got lots more fantastic interviews lined up for you. So tune in again soon. And thanks so much again to you, Michelle. Thank you, Michelle. And uh, all the best to you down under. Thank you to everyone for listening to this week's episode of Women Who Move Nations. This series is co-produced by Cassandra Kadelka and Lara Rudd with copywriting by Sophia Dickinson. Please join us each week as we raise the voices of women in the public transport and mobility sector. I'm Michelle Batsis. Keep safe and keep our nations moving. <laughs>